Welcome back. This is part two of my conversation with Susan Rogers. If you haven't listened to part one, go back. Yeah, like Picasso was perfectly able to draw people in not cube form, right? right. <laughs> like he, he was he was a very adept artist, but you know, yeah, the um, you know, yeah, I, I get what you mean, and I I was really moved by that um, by that bit that comparison to abstract um, art. I think also because the digital version that you talk about happened in my you know, in, in a part, in a time that was formative for me. Right. Yeah. So I am part of the generation that was born analog, uh-huh. but transitioned to digital at that, at that um, time. So you say that some people like artificial sounds, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, so you can, I never imagine. So for example, I'll give you an example from my list because this made me, the book made me think quite a bit, you know, so I think you ask in this section of the book, do you like so if I listen to Creedence Clearwater Revival, I can imagine what it's like to be in a concert. I'm trying to approximate that concert. I can imagine the number of instruments, for example. I'm kind of paraphrasing you, but I can... That is a approximation of reality, and some people really like that. And then I know what you mean. There are some songs that could not be performed on stage, mm. right? Manu Chao is very much like this. Like all of those little buzzes and ringtones and stuff that he has in his songs that's no those aren't natural sounds right and i don't assume them to be that doesn't annoy me i don't i don't think oh that's not that what is that a salt a ringtone that i for whatever reason that doesn't tend to annoy me yeah but um you're saying that people will have a preference right on each of these seven dimensions listeners tend to have a sweet spot where Music sounds just right to them, a Goldilocks zone. It's, uh, in the case of realism versus abstraction, uh, research that I did with my co-author suggests that it's related to the visualizations that we engage in when we're listening to our favorite music. Now, not everybody uh, gets visualizations when they're listening to music. Roughly 10% don't, but the rest do. And this research suggested that Some of us may prefer realistic records, I'm one of them, because we like visualizing the performers or visualizing ourselves performing. So a realistic record is one that's made with musical instruments that we recognize, that we know, bass and drums and guitar and piano, things that we can easily picture. It's a a depiction of reality. But abstract records are made with, uh, they're made in the box. They're made by computer. They're made with uh, software designs and they're made by algorithms. So when you're listening to, let's say, an electronic dance record with no acoustical instruments on it whatsoever, maybe just the voice, where does your mind go? For many people who prefer electronic music, their minds go to their favorite fantasy, which might be abstract shapes and colors. It might be other worlds, science fiction worlds or other places. They're not picturing musicians performing in a studio. They're picturing something that is disconnected, for the most part, from those musical sound sources because those sound sources are harder to picture. You don't know what made that noise in many cases. Some of us are going to have Mm. a preference for that kind of visualization or that kind of record. And, uh, well, we tend to have a preference, but uh, sometimes our taste will fall right in the middle where we like a record like, let's say, Lil Nas X's Old Town Road, which is a blend 
of acoustical instruments, but an awful lot of sampling as well. Yeah. I find that a lot of records currently also, I don't know how you could live in kind of a um, realism-free world in the sense that like, um, I find that even the most kind of digitally produced records have to have a callback to something real for us to kind of dig into cerebrally. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I don't know if there's a nostalgia with it. I don't know why I'm thinking about that Harry Styles record that's so po- that's so popular right now, but there's a kind of 80s feeling to it that pulls back. To, I don't know if it's synth. I don't know what it is. I don't know if the, it's the distance farther away from the microphone. There's a, there's a way in which... I don't know, there's a way in which, for example, I can hear, I feel like I can hear natural claps as opposed mm-hmm. to simulated claps. You talk about clapping, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I don't know if that makes sense, but... Um, it does make sense. In fact, um, people who like electronic music, that's their go-to style, tell me that the electronic music they prefer tends to have a human quality. This is one of the reasons right. why Daft Punk was so popular, because Daft Punk certainly was expressing the electronic computer-generated music world, but there was so much humanity and even a sense of humor in their music that sure. it linked those two worlds. Uh, that, that, is, that is very true. Music that is strictly machine-driven tends to be uh, appealing to only a, a smaller percentage of listeners. Right. Um... Um, the word that comes to mind, I suppose, would be airless or austere somehow. They, be, like, yeah. There is something in me that wants that human part. Um, I have to ask you one thing before we get to Eurovision. So in, in the book, you go on quite a lot about um, what it's like to be, you know, a sound engineer. And just as you were just talking now about you're trying to take a snapshot of what you've heard, you're trying to make a faithful representation of what you've heard, just as like Vermeer was trying to paint a very faithful rabbit or vase or apple or whatever, right? So if you're Vermeer or one of the masters, like pre-photography, and that is your goal, it has just occurred to me. So I knew this German physicist who studied color and how light bounces off color. And he worked with ink, right? Printer ink. And he told me once that you, blue is the hardest color to ape. It's the hardest color to to reproduce. Like basically if you've seen Van Gogh's Starry Night, you were the only one, there is no replacement because there's so much blue in that painting. The printed version, there's no way to make like a poster or anything that replicates that kind of faithfully. I don't know if that makes sense, but it did make me go home and think, oh, fudge, even the best reproduction is not the same as seeing seeing the real thing and not even close, maybe even like the distance, you know, you think, okay, I can't go to, you know, Amsterdam or whatever, like I'll, you know, so I guess what I'm asking you is you tried to make, and probably succeeded, at making the best copy of Prince's work on tape. And you've talked about how hard this is, about the mm-hmm. the the challenges with magnetic tape, involved with magnetic tape. Um, I think somebody put a microphone in a hose at some point. And I guess what I'm asking you is, you have had the experience of seeing the 
real McCoy. You've been in front of the real Starry Night. And, you know, so you are unique because, you know, music is ephemeral, right? Once once Prince has done that three minutes, it's it's over and the rest of us are stuck with the, the record or the, the video. Do you, in your memory, do you, you know the difference between the real thing and the version that we listen to? When you hear the, the record, do you know what's missing? I guess that's my question. Yeah, that's a good question. So in that sense, all music is abstract in some way, because even back in my day of analog tape, the musicians, might let's say it's Prince and his band, are out there in the studio and they're creating music and you're hearing the music coming through the speakers before it gets to tape and you know what it sounds like. And then it gets to tape and then it comes back and it's ever so slightly different because tape doesn't give us a perfect reproduction. Similar to watching a movie versus actually seeing something in real life. A movie does a good job of picturing the reality of our world, but it's still just a screen. We're still just seeing these images on a screen. So reality is uh, by necessity going to be different than uh, the recorded world. I think our brains just automatically adjust, listen to recorded art, and um, and then use our imaginations to fill in the blanks of what it must have sounded like in the room. Right, like I'll never, I know that the Carters don't sound like what they do on, you know, mm. the technology hampered that or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Um, I don't imagine Charlie Chaplin in color, but I know that he existed in color, right? But um, when you listen to those recordings today, do you know what, do you hear anything missing? Do you think, oh, I really would have think, I think I wish I would have caught this nuance or that nuance. Mm, It's, uh, I always wish I could have done a better job when I was with Prince because I was so early in my development as a record maker. I, I became so much more skilled after I left him because I worked with a variety of artists and made mistakes and, and all that. Prince was so supremely in charge of the sound and the style on his records that you're basically just facilitating his ideas. There was room, of course, for some creative license on my part, but not nearly as much as what I did when I contributed to other people's records. Also, when I listened to Prince records, the ones I worked on, it's so intimately wrapped up with memories. It's really hard to listen to it and not remember that day, uh, that time in my life. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's, it might be impossible for me to really assess them objectively. Fair enough. All right, for Eurovision fans, I have planned, so I planned some of the biggest controversies in recent Eurovisions for us to talk about. So this is kind of a strange record poll where on behalf of fans, I have taken it upon myself to give you one song versus the other and tell me what you hear with um, groups of songs that divide fans, right? Great. So our first controversy is 2018 Toy versus Fuego. Um, I have also included for Susan a side dish of Amar Pelos Deutsch because um, as everyone will remember, Salvador Sobral one with kind of what some people call a lullaby. He encouraged, you know, Eurovision to be a place for, you know, real music. And then Toy won the next year. Uh, And lots of people felt that that was undeserved, you know, because Fuego 
a lot of people felt was the shoe in winner. These are three very different songs. What do you hear in these songs? Let's start with uh, Amor Pelos Dues. Uh, And in all three of these cases, um, the listening experience is heavily mediated by the video. So our eyes are giving us cues as to what's going on with the performer and giving us some really powerful cues about the subtext. So it's it's difficult to not integrate those visual images into our impression of the music. But I'll try. I I would suggest for a song contest that they not have such a strong visual element, but that wouldn't work commercially. So (laughs) here we go. So Amor Pelos Doyes is a really pretty song. It's a really nice melody. Now, the, uh, the, the, the video showing the performance by the singer strikes me as very close to my sweet spot on the dimension of authenticity because his face and his hands and his body language are suggesting that he's actually in the moment and feeling that melody. That yeah. he could, technically... He could sing this song while standing still, but those bodily gestures are becoming part of his performance gestures. So it feels very sincere. It is a very beautiful song. It's in a traditional style. The opening melodic refrain suggests this is going to be sweet, but not cloying, not overly saccharine. Mm. Uh, I can see why it appealed to a lot of people. He makes the point, for those of us who don't speak Portuguese, that if a singer's doing his or her job correctly, you're going to get an emotional uh, feeling from that record, even if you don't understand the lyrics. The melody is doing that work beautifully. It's a gorgeous melody, strong song, and, uh, and a wonderful, wonderful performance. The voice, notice how it's up He's singing up high. He's got a high voice. He's up high. Yeah, if I turned it off, I would think it was a female jazz singer. Yeah, and that is the subtext in a male voice of power. Not all men can get their voices up there that high and still have control. Smart move, I think, to put that song in that key and to get his voice up there in that register where it captures our attention. It's not a conversational tone of voice. It's a singing, musical tone of voice. So he's showing Mm. some strong musicality in that performance, and I can see why it connected with a lot of people, and it deserves our respect. I I think it's a good record. Now, Absolutely. To- oh, now Toy, uh, Toy by Netta. I loved it. <laughs> I, I loved it because it appealed to, it was right at my sweet spot for novelty. I loved the novelty in that record. I tend to like records that are a little bit boundary pushing, not quite as far as freeform jazz, but I like a convention busting on a record more than I like just towing the classical line. So there were many unexpected surprises in that record, both in the sounds and in the performance. It was a, it was a, a very strong video performance. One of the things I liked about it is that the dancers were focused not on selling sexuality, but selling the human body as as an art form, as you would see in, in modern dance. I loved the yeah. artistry of the choreography. This artist, Netta, seemed to me to be an artist concerned 
with advancing the state of the art in music. Incorporating those chicken sounds was cool. Smart lyric writing. I'm not your toy, you stupid boy. Now, it's tough to be that simple in our lyric writing and yet have it be a hook. But those are the words that would capture someone's attention. Whether you're saying that to someone or you're the person who's saying it, it's attention grabbing. It's not cliche. It's not pedestrian. I thought there were a lot of great elements in that really fun record. Uh, I, I, I liked it very, very much. Excellent. You're a fan of Toy. I did not expect that. I really I'm a little it. bit shocked. How did you feel about Fuego then? Uh, Fuego was my least favorite of these three, in part because the video manipulated me into thinking a certain way about it. The video was very much a fashion shoot, and it was very yeah. much um, selling the artist as, um, uh, as selling her sexuality. It was saying, yeah, yeah. here's what I want you to think of me. And that message was, um, it, it targets a, a certain audience, uh, people who are older who and you're younger, people who are not attracted to this woman would say, okay, this music is not for me. I don't think that the uh, video did the artist any favors. It was purely a vehicle, that music, seemed to be a vehicle for selling the artist as a sexual, beautiful, desirable human being. Well, the world is full of those people. We, we can open up any fashion magazine. We see beautiful people. So what, why, why, why use music as a, as a vehicle to sell this impression of yourself? Why use music? Musically speaking, if you turn off the video and just listen to it, it's a fine club dance pop record. It's, it, it's, it's capable. You can tell that there were experienced folks who contributed to that record. Unfortunately, the video didn't show anybody playing a musical instrument. They seemed, um, it was highly, highly abstract. They seemed unconcerned with music as an art form and very much concerned with using music merely as a tool for fame. Wow, that's yeah. like a Eurovision subgenre. Every time I talk to an expert, I think, oh, there's like a whole grouping of songs that um, fit the bill um, for Eurovision listeners. Maybe El Diablo, maybe um, maybe Chanel last year, um, Slow Mo. Oh, maybe Michael Ben David was like this. I don't know how how you how Eurovision fans feel about this. Let me know. Definitely super. Okay, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting you to love Fuego. I don't know why. No, no. Yes. If I if I may say, please, listeners, recognize that I'm offering you my perspective, yeah. and my perspective is coming from that of a record maker and that of someone who is scanning the musical elements, the melody, the lyrics, and scanning those elements to see how can we express it musically. The style of music that Fuego does is not my wheelhouse at all. So my opinion is both professional and, of course, as it always is, personal. The kind of music that I respond to is different than the music that, that Fuego is putting out there. So don't ever be thinking that anyone's uh, opinion of music is superior than anyone else's. We're talking about this, individual taste. Yeah, this comes up in Eurovision quite a lot because I think we all recognize that the it is unique Eurovision, I think, in a way, because we recognize that 
to get where they have. The artists have gone through a real gauntlet in the national um, processes that um, creating is a lot different than, you know, we, it's easy to be a critic. It's hard mm -hmm. to be a creator. And I think we all, because Eurovision provides such a large range of music, um, everything's, something's bound to be Marmite to everyone. Right. So yeah, like we do say that habitually every, every episode, I feel like, yeah. Um, tastes are tastes and there's nothing wrong with Fuego for like lots and lots of people. All right. So our next our next controversy, ooh, Schum versus Stefania. So the reason that I've included these is because Schum did so well in its time. Stefania, you know, won last year, which is why we're, um, you know, Ukraine is the current reigning champ. Uh, the flautist is the same um, in Kalush, so who, who sung Stefania. So um, this divides fans. People love Shum. Lots of people, well, I shouldn't say everyone because we've just covered that ground. Yeah, lots of people don't like Shum, but lots of people do, came in fifth, but people just don't like Stefania. And I, well, on the on the boards as well, you know, there might be some bitterness over their win. But anyway, could you please talk to us about these two songs? I don't find these two songs that different, let's say in genre in their kind of out there-ness. I mean, these are not pop, neither of these songs to me are pop songs. So if mm. you, if I, it, it strikes me as odd that you would really like one, but you know, find the other one, I don't know, somehow objectionable. How, how do you feel about these two songs? I really liked one and I found the other objectionable. <laughs> I liked, oh, okay. <laughs> I liked Shum very much because I liked the creativity. I liked the blend of the traditional Eastern European musical elements with um, the 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 non-Eastern European elements. I really liked that a lot. I thought Shum was a fine, fine record. I liked the uh, arrangement and the the instrumentation choices. I liked the vocal performance. I I, I was a, I was a fan of that record. The problem with Stefania, in my view, was how dated it sounded. It sounded like Eminem from the early 2000s, which sounded a little bit like Beastie Boys from the mid-90s. Again, the staging did not help them. The choreography, the performance gestures, the rap, it really felt dated. I recognized their passion and their gusto, but uh, if I were producing that that record, uh, I'd, I'd definitely revitalize it and refresh it and modernize it uh, to a greater extent than what I heard. It, it really felt dated to me. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, and I have to ask at this point, do you like the Beastie Boys? Oh, yeah. In the 90s. Okay, I, <laughs> right, in the 90s. The Beastie Boys, because, you know, Bare Naked Ladies is in my wheelhouse, so you can imagine that Beastie Boys lyrics are like right up there for me. Um, there is something about the Beastie Boys that doesn't take, they don't take themselves too seriously. At least that's my impression as a fan. There's something about Eminem where he takes himself very seriously, and that bothers me. Mm -hmm. um, so when you... There's just, again, there's just something that little bit more arid about Eminem for me in that particular comparison than the Beastie Boys. And so when you say Eminem, I do, I do hear now what you're hearing. You okay, know, I hear now I, what you're hearing. I, I want to say, too, that music cannot, any kind of art form can't be 
entirely separated from its context. When students play works in class, records that they love, one of the first things I ask them is, what year did this come out? Because you want to evaluate it in the context of what else was going on artistically at that time. For entries from Ukraine, they have our sympathy from the get-go. We are admiring of these folks who are whose countrymen are going through a really tough time. And we um, will tend to be generous of spirit when listening to the art that they create. We, we're going to be wide open. Our antennae will be raised because we want to hear them express themselves um, during this tough time they're going through. I am interested, really, in that this album, so Eminem sounds dated to me. Hip-hop, some hip-hop does not. So you, oh gosh, I'm, I'm losing my, my memory, but I think you mentioned Chuck D. Oh, Did yeah. Did I get it right? From Public Enemy, yeah. Okay, so Public Enemy, for example, to me, doesn't sound dated, right? And so there's a way in which solid rap, Eminem's version of solid rap sounds dated, but hip-hop, depending on doesn't. So I had kind of classed Stefania as a hip hop sound. Also not my wheelhouse. Fun fact. I'm, I'm sure now hip hop fans are like now probably incensed because they're like, yeah, this is this this is not that. But um, is that maybe where you would have gone with this album, Stefania? Could you could you have made it more hip hop and less 90s rap and saved it somehow? Was there was there any saving this song to make it sound new? Great question. If that was what they wanted to do, um, making modern hip hop, then I, I certainly wouldn't be the consultant you'd bring in for that. That's not an area where, where I have a lot of knowledge or strength. If they said, no, we want you, uh, it's got to be you, I would probably look to someone like um, Kendrick Lamar or, uh, or Tyler, the creator, something like that to see um, what... How, how can we pull this into a new era that invites curiosity and, and more um, inspection of your musical talents rather than um, as what I interpreted as merely an expression of I'm going to use this style of music to get my message across. Good and fine. But as I said before, I tend to like music that is stronger in novelty than in familiarity. I, I, I tend to like to bust up familiar forms because that appeals to me personally a little bit more. Other yeah, listeners yeah. prefer the perfection of a familiar form. If you're going for classic hip hop, find a producer who is the best at that and uh, you'll get it up as high as that style of music can go. Yeah, there's something inside in me that thinks that they either needed to go back 10 years to something more True. authentic or forward 10 years, like it's that Eminem right there in the Slim Shady thing that I think, oh yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it would have been more authentic to go either back to 1980 Good. or forward 20 years to Kendrick Lamar or whatever. But yeah, okay. Next up, we have a non-controversy that, um, you know, I thought someone of your caliber would clear up for us. Um, Embers versus Spaceman for fun. Uh, yeah, I know. She's she's let, let the record show she's smiling. Um, as as Eurovision super fans know, or even Eurovision fans light, Ember's got nul point in 2021. Lots of songs got nul point in 2021. Mm. Um, it made for like some viewing that was really there was a lot of payoff there for viewers in that last 20 minutes of voting when we were like, wait, what? 
So yeah, Embers got dragged in, in 2021. I have thoughts about the staging, the giant trumpets, the lack of pyrotechnics. I could go on forever. However, Spaceman is catnip and is, you know, Rosalind Snap has beaten it, which is also a Eurovision song. So uh, the, the winner the winner last year was really Rosalind. We all know that. But, you know, Spaceman uh, uh, is coming in pretty well as well for Sam Ryder. What do you hear in Embers versus Spaceman? I am going to grab my notes. And my yeah, notes please. were um, spontaneous impressions as I listened to these two records. And I'm not grabbing my notes because I've forgotten. I remember. I just want you to get my knee-jerk <laughs> impressions. I'm riveted. We'll I'm riveted, Susan. She's pulled so, out the notes. It's yes. serious now. So here's Embers by James Newman. Uh, I wrote, as it's playing for the first time, uncharismatic vocal. The vocal okay. performance, wow, I think this song could have been helped by pushing it into a higher key because the singer is in a such a comfortable range in his vocal. Hmm. It almost sounds like he's phoning it in. Come on, give us a little bit more effort. Get up there. Uh, the other thing I put was unexciting lyrics. Think about the phrase, the tagline, out of the embers, out of the embers, out of the embers. Does that evoke an ash bin? Does that evoke the end of a fire? Trash. To me, it evoked a record meeting where somebody noted that it's like COVID and, you know, we're coming out of, of we're all coming out of a very difficult period and the message is it's going to be on point for 2021. Now, that could have been a fine lyric incorporated into the verses, but not as a tagline in the chorus, because the job of a chorus is to put a melody and a hook in your head that feels good up there. And okay. out of the embers, does that feel like something you want to revisit over and over again? I don't think so. Out of the embers, that phrase and perhaps even that melody should have been the setup, the verse, where a chorus that provides a payoff takes us actually out of the embers and lifts us up and brings us up to something that feels like redemption or salvation or a rescue from these embers. So I think, uh, I, I think some song construction needed to happen there to make this a more compelling song. Yeah. Uh, and, and the notion of Out of the Embers as a tagline was just a little bit too vague. Now, uh, Spaceman by Sam Ryder, I liked very, very much. And that hook <laughs> did what it's supposed to do. It got stuck in my head. I'm up in space. I'm up in space. It's evocative. It's fun. It's original. It's fun to imagine. Uh, there was a huge difference in the vocal performances. Sam is up there. He's got his voice up there. He's working for us. Like the first singer we talked about with um, yeah. Amor Pelos Dois. Yeah, He's up there. It had a good melody. And you will learn that song. That's the kind of song you could go to a piano and learn the chords of. Out of the embers, no. You're going you're gonna to learn those chord changes. And I've got that same criticism for Fuego. Are you going to want to learn it and reproduce it? Uh, unlikely. Sometimes music is just fun in the moment. And, uh, and, and yet it, it's not substantive enough to provide a, an aesthetic meal. Whereas I thought Spaceman was and, and Embers was not. Yeah, I didn't expect this reaction from you either. Mm. Because... Um, you know, I've, we've, we've had this appointment booked for a while and I have, I did set this up thinking, oh, what's she going to think? 
because in your book you said you don't care for the Beatles. To, they're not in your sweet spots. So I shouldn't say don't care for it. Oh, yeah. They're just not Great your favorite. Yeah, yeah, not fine. my favorite. Yeah, not your favorite. Spaceman to me has so many Beatles references. And I don't know if it's just me. It might be just me. I mean, I do. I think I do often think of Eurovision songs as there must be a committee just as a record committee decides what's sellable. There must be a national, you know, when we, when countries send things to the final, they must think this could win, right? right? Like this could win. And I think the UK sending this, it's um, so positive. It is everything that, um, so I have this, this, this beef with the UK that they, they think, oh, we do so well at pop. We'll just send another pop singer. And that's what I think happened with James Newman. I think mm. it, that was like, like that song was created by some kind of algorithm going like, well, we, you know, we run the pop world. Like, why, how could we, we'll just, you know, pick somebody out of a hat. And I think you needed something more, more for Eurovision fans, for Eurovision fans mm. especially. And I think Spaceman is that. Like, I think Spaceman knows its audience, right? They're not doing, Spaceman is not dialing it in. I don't know how complex it is, Spaceman. Um, could Oasis have sung it? Could the Beatles have sung it? Could, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. It, it occupies that space. It, it occupies like the harmonic, some kind of harmonic space for me that's very pleasant. Um, me too. And, you yeah, know, maybe I'd put it with too. eight days a week or something on an album. I, I, um, I would also ask you, because now I'm interested, as a person that listens to music in English and Italian, um, because I'm bilingual, something I've I've pointed this out on another podcast when we talk about San Remo. The thing that I English is my musical home. There is something very particular about music in English. Uh, not only because we have a tremendous vocabulary, because we have so many short words, you know, bet bat bit bite that you can fit so much into one phenome. You know, you talk about mm-hmm. phenomes. You you can you can just squish an entire ton of meaning in in English lyrics in a way that's harder, I think, in Italian. I I don't know other languages, but also I think after years of listening, the thing that makes me most nuts is that Italians tend to be very matchy-matchy with their melody and their lyrics. And I think this comes from an operatic tradition, right? Depressing lyrics, depressing melody. Happy lyrics, happy melody. This bothers me. This bothers me about Whitney Houston, right? Like I want to dance with somebody. I do not want to hear something. It registers to me as um, like a Broadway musical or something. There's a place for that. I don't want it in my, in my, I just don't like it. You asked us, I think, to take, in some songs, you asked us to just sing them, the, like the DDD and sing the melody and think about that melody. I can't remember the song you use. The song I think of is My Funny Valentine, right? Mm. Where it's a love song with very, you would, if you just read the lyrics, it's a beautiful love story. When you listen to the melody, that melody is a little bit melancholy, a lot melancholy, right? And I like that about English music. I like that about, I like that about Nirvana, for example. I like that juxtaposition between what the lyrics are telling us and what the melody is telling us. And sometimes in English, those don't match. And I like that dissonance. Um, Embers for me was very matchy matchy. I don't, I don't know the ember. There's like a lack of dimension. There's a lack of dimensionality in embers. Yeah. Um, and this is the same thing I don't like about Queen. Lots of people like Queen. Queen to me is opera. Yeah. So at, at any rate, if you if you want to uh, to listen to some of um, Susan's examples with that, definitely read the book. Uh, I'd um, like to say a word about that congruence that you were just talking about. Uh, in the studio, we do consider that. Uh, lyrics are the text, yeah. and music is the subtext. 
And you can make a record where they are hand in glove. They are all saying the same thing. The music's saying what the lyrics are saying. But it's uh, interesting and, and it's artistic to sometimes have that, that lack of congruence where the lyrics are saying, I'm doing great. I feel fantastic. I'm glad she's gone. That's wonderful. And the music are saying, his heart is broken. He's right. so depressed. He's lying to you, listeners. That uh, incongruence can be artistically very interesting because it fans out the kind of expression that we're getting from the music. So yeah, if you've got a real simple pop song where the lyrics and the melody are saying the exact same thing, you have to go into that consciously as you produce that record. Um if we strip the words from the melody, we ask ourselves, what is that melody saying? And two examples I use in the book were um, Kesha's Call Me Maybe and Pharrell's Happy. So if we're imagining the melody of Call Me Maybe, it goes... Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly oh, that's Ray right. Jepsen. Not Kesha. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, Kesha, Kesha fans are going to get on me about oh, that. So, and, and, <laughs> thank yeah, you for yeah, correcting yeah, yeah, yeah. me. I just saw her face on something the other day, so she was on my mind. Yeah, she did TikTok right around the same time, but yeah. it was Carly Rae Jepsen, and the melody goes... Da 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 da, da 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 da, da 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 da, da 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 da. Nice little melody to, that is suggesting, oh, I get a little bit of hesitation. Oh, but this seems kind of good. And yeah, it's incomplete. Yes, I I invite you to. Yeah, I'm resolved now. I invite you to call me maybe. But if we listen to the melody of happy, da 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 da. That's what it's repeating over and over. Because I'm happy, da 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 da. And then the, the answer line is da 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 da. It's essentially just a rhythmic clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. So, what makes that so happy? In part, it's the layering of those background vocals. And when he sings, because I'm happy, there's background vocals that are going way up to the sky that are lifting like a hot air balloon. And that gives us the feeling of melody. But that's happening in the arrangement of the record, not in the writing of the tune itself. It's important to separate a song from a record. They're two different things. So... You've, re- you've mentioned how high a singer is singing multiple times um, in multiple um, contexts, you know. He's working for it. It transmits something different to us. It makes it less boring to us, right? So if it was in a lower octave, it would just be super boring. If you, So I assume you're saying that if you lowered happy by an octave, it just wouldn't work. <laughs> Probably wouldn't. I mean, it's called it's called happy, right? Like, yeah. like so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It needs to it needs to rise and float. It's mimicking the feeling of elation. You know, people use the the cliched phrases. Oh, my heart had wings, or I was floating around the room. When we're describing happiness, we're describing a feeling of elation, of rising up. All right. Last but not least, before we close out, I did as an optional exercise give it give you all of the 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 null point entries from that year. Oh, yes. If you watched any of them, did you have any additional thoughts? And then we'll close out. Okay. So I yeah. Go ahead, Susan. You had some Gendrick. You had some. You had some Netherlands there. Like we had a little bit of everything. I've forgotten who else. Maybe Spain. Go ahead. Yeah. Germany, Spain, Netherlands. I won't p- UK. point fingers at anybody, but uh, I tried to listen to them all the way through, and a couple of times I had that reaction, which is, "This is unlistenable." Really? Yeah. Meaning, 
I so don't want this in my psyche. There are studies, I talk about it in the book, of what happens to us when we're listening to music that we don't like. And there's a little brain structure called the precunius that cuts itself off from the thing I mentioned earlier, the default network, our inner sense of ourself and our self-image. When we're listening to music we don't like, part of our brain is saying, I reject this so totally, and just like tasting a food you don't like, you want to spit it out. Or smelling something that you don't like the smell of, you want to close your nose. Um, Listening to music that you personally don't like will cause you to say, nope, and you're going to drop that veil and you're really not going to listen to it and analyze it. So what causes us to not like something? It's different for everyone. As you said earlier, people who submitted this work regarded it as potential winners. This could win. Um, The very first one that you shared with me was... I I don't feel hate. Is that what it was called? Yeah, I don't feel yeah, hate. yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I feel sadness or something like that. I just feel sorry. I just yeah, feel I just sorry. Feel right. Sorry. That's right. Uh, and the, it was on ukulele, and it was very arresting visually. <laughs> I got the sense if they had just put as much effort into that record as they did the video, uh, it could have done yeah. really well. Again. We have a melody that's not really saying much of anything. Uh, I don't feel hate. It, 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 it wasn't potent enough. It wasn't a strong enough vehicle to carry those words. And as with our, our earlier fellow who did the, the record that got zero votes, uh, that could have been the verse, but it shouldn't have been the chorus. Not strong enough for the chorus. Not strong enough. There was a, wow. yeah, just not strong enough. We've, we've got to work a little bit harder. They worked hard on that video and it was adorable. <laughs> I really liked it. It was adorable. Yeah, but, it was the, adorable. but the music itself. But you're saying, you're saying that the, you're saying that the, so they got the null point in the televote and you're saying that, you know, maybe listeners get it right. I think so. Well, that's us. We are on input, and the music's job is to connect with us. There are many ways it can connect with us. As I mentioned earlier, if you've got a raw song, you're assessing its attributes. If its melody's not strong, and if its lyrics are not strong, don't worry. You can still have a hit record, but that rhythm needs to be slamming. That rhythm needs to be undeniable so that listeners will connect and get their treat from the rhythm. Many a record has done this. An example I give in the book is James Brown's Hot Pants. The lyric is, hot pants give you confidence. You know, it's from the 60s or the early 70s. I'm not interested in those lyrics. Who wears hot pants? And the melody is nothing memorable. What <laughs> people at Eurovision, yes. Susan. People at Eurovision wear hot I pants. I guess they do. Just yeah, to, maybe, maybe they're coming they back in mind. Okay. So <laughs> what I'm getting from that record, and I'm getting it in a heavy dose, is that rhythmic groove. And I've got yeah. Jimmy Nolan on guitar and Clyde Stubblefield on drums. All of the music I need is right yeah. there in that rhythm. Record makers need to keep this in mind. You have to be able to objectively assess the strength of your melody and your lyrics and your rhythm so you can move the listener's spotlight of attention to your best stuff. Don't put the spotlight of attention on lyrics that are weak. Don't put the spotlight of attention on a melodic hook that is, that is weak. Um, it'll be dismissed by listeners. 
Yeah, I did think a lot about rhythm and the rhythms that I like in reading your book. Like it made me sing like the Seven Nation Army rhythm. Oh yeah. Or or um money. Da 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 or like Bo Diddley. Mm-hmm. Like da 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 da. Like so I don't know, like um I don't think about myself as much of a hips person, but I tried to really channel all of the you know, all of that that I could and think like what do I love about that? Uh, one, um, I wanted to say one of these songs that didn't get any points was the young man who was singing about his grandmother who had passed. Yeah. And immediately it evoked for me another song written about a grandmother who had passed away, one that is much, much better. Uh, this song was never commercially released, but it's called Hamburger, Please. It was written by my friend Tommy Jordan, who was a young man. That was his grandmother's final words. He asked her, can I get you anything? She was on her deathbed. He asked, can I get you anything? And she said, hamburger, please. She passed away. The song opens with the line, silver and gray on a winter's day, on a train making tracks to her bed. So it starts with poetry. He's taking the silver and gray of the sky and imagining the silver and gray of her hair on a train making tracks to her bed. And the chorus says, hamburger, please, pizza and beer. Before we go, let's leave something here. Beautiful melody, poetic lyrics. Then in a song like this, those poetic lyrics allow a song about your grandmother to become our song avoids the use of the word I, the pronoun I. It, mm. It's not talking about the singer's personal grandmother and personal experiences. It's talking about everyone's grandmother, everyone's experience of slipping out of this uh, mortal coil and, 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 and beyond. That's, That's how really... it's done. That's how it's done. So, yeah, songwriters out there, you got to work for us. You've got to work for our attention. Uh, push harder. Push harder. I would like to thank you profusely for having come and, and been our guest. I would also uh, like to ask if you have anything to plug. <laughs> well, thank you very much for allowing me to participate in this wonderful conversation and talk about these records. These folks, the creators, are working really hard for us, but it's not easy. The competition is really, really good. And this is why it yeah. helps for us to uh, collaborate and have a good producer on your team, have good engineers and, and, um, and always uh, doubt yourself. When you think it's good enough, ask yourself, is there anything about this record that I really hate? And if the answer is yes, stay at that drawing board until you can say to yourself, no, I don't think I could force myself to hate this. I think it's actually really good. We have to work really hard. The competition is great. And the thing I'd like to plug, uh, please, is uh, the, the book I've written about, about music listening. It's called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Um, it's, uh, it's all about you, the listener, not about me. It's all about you. Two more plugs from me. The first is Susan's website, thisiswhatitsoundslike.com. There you'll find all of the record pulls Susan has talked about, specific songs that will help you decide what your tastes are involving authenticity, realism, novelty, melody, lyrics, rhythm, timbre, and more. It's a lot of fun. 
The second plug, if you can call it that, involves York musician, ESC fan, and father of five, Don Jackson. Don's a legend in York, having performed with the band The Crowmen, and he's produced a number of records. The current situation is that Don was on the NHS waiting list for a liver transplant with a seven-month delay due to COVID, when his wait was only supposed to be 65 days. His tumor is now one millimeter over the limit, and the NHS says it's not in their policy to operate. It turns out that Turkey has brilliant medical care, and they will do Don's transplant. As of this recording, on February 12th, 2023, Don needs to raise about 50,000 more pounds to get to Turkey, and he's got two weeks to do it. I get a lot of GoFundMes for medical care on socials from the American side of my life, but this one has really touched me. Mostly because there's a heartbreaking note that says if Don doesn't get to Turkey, you quote, get your money back. If you love dance music, the 80s, or if computer says no has ever happened to you, just Google Don Jackson liver GoFundMe or look in our show notes. Please share it on your socials if you're a social person. That's it for Eurovision Song Context for the moment. We release an episode on the 12th of every month. The Doozith. You can find us on the podcast app of your choice. You can find show notes in the description of this episode and on our website at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm. I'm also on Twitter at ESC Context if you want to say hi. Hi.